It's good to see everybody. Um, kicking off, uh, though it's been uh, a month, this is the second part of a two-part class. Um, the last one really was all the way back right after Christmas, and so it's not really a series, you could say, but just a theme that I wanted to kind of plumb, uh, and I thought I need to do this at least two weeks, and I had sort of two standalone classes, and I thought, well, I can do that. So this is we're chatting and letting people kind of settle in. Um, Andrew mentioned this at nine, but I'll say it as well because uh, I've been really, I've been a lot enlivened personally with this Thursday night series that's been going on with, with Mark the first Thursday and then Peter Mowitz from, from, uh, from Sanford, from Deason coming last week, and now Bill Boyd, the senior pastor at Covenant, will be there this Thursday night. Cramner House um, Law Gospel as it relates to doctrine of sanctification, which sounds really high. At a ground level, and I think Bill Boyd, I expect, I suspect is a better word, Bill will bring it at more of a pastoral level since he's a preacher, since he's a pastor, since he's a church minister. He's going to bring it in. And this is, this is the theological construct for such a question as, is it okay for me to say I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a better dad? Or I want to be more patient? Or I wish I had more of that quality? Can a Christian say that sort of thing? How then shall we live? In what way can we describe effort and be proper? Um, how can I say this is up to me? You know, those kind of questions. Those are real sort of here and now questions. Um, and I think Bill's going to, in our final week of the three-week series, kind of bring it together. Um, now, at the high level, um, especially on Thursday, Peter Mowitz really had just, just a lot of... of, of Compelling is a word. Um, it, it spun me out into a lot of thoughts for me personally. I'm telling you all this because I'm just trying to fill the air here, but it's been really fun. I hope you'll come back on Thursday. Um, and then I'm going to start a week, a series next week on the book of Galatians, um, see where that goes. That's what I'm going to do the next three or four weeks, some other stuff that's coming up. Um, uh, Dennis Samson, who I think is an excellent teacher, teaches ethics and philosophy over at Stanford. He's going to teach a class during Lent on Dante, which will be really fun for a lot of folk. Um, Mark is starting his class on Hebrews. Mark, Matthew, uh, Matt Schneider's in a great series. So lots going on. So with all that, let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, turn your um, your gaze to us now. We would pray. Um, reveal to us what you would have us know about ourselves, about you, about what you have done. Um, uh, Lord, incline us to uh, uh, to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly and to allow, through your gracious word, uh, our feet and our hands to be uh, busy and active with this faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So this theme um, related to a very, very short text. Um, it's in all three of the, what are called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, uh, Luke says it this way, And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a loaded two verses. Um, those who are well have no need of a physician. So it brings out immediately the idea of need, uh, contra wellness. Um, but those who are sick, so now he's identifying categories, the well and the sick. We should begin to think, hmm. In what way do I fall into that? Was that before? Is that after? Is that now? Well, sick, need. 
I, Jesus speaking, um, on the heels of, of Deborah's really fine sermon with the authority that Jesus is increasingly taking upon himself, the thunderous news that it, that is, um, I have not come. So as an incarnation, I have come. The Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel, he is here. It is now among you. I have not come to call the righteous. So Jesus sets up first in the negative. What have I not come to do? To call the righteous, to call, to evoke, to evocare, to, to call forth, to speak, and to bring forth a response, that living and active word. I have not come to call the righteous, but always an important word in scriptures. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So now we're back into category, category of need, category of brokenness, category of who am I? Am I in this? Am I in that? Am I both? Am I neither? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the word repentance, metanoia, um, this turning of a heart, this turning of a mind, this turning of one's will, affections. In other words, change. Change. How then shall we live? Can I say that I am changed? Am I different from what I once was, Now, but I now am? I once was blind, but now I see. This son of mine who was dead, he is now alive, as the, prod- as the father of the prodigal would speak. How does all that sort of play? And this is why the Thursdays have been so enlivening to me. Um, this very short text, which is laden with so many theological, so many more than theological, get off that word, um, just so many practical, pragmatic, on-the-ground questions. Um, what am I going to do about my job? What am I going to do about my depression? What am I going to do about my daughter, my son, my wife, um, my, my father, my mother? All the relationships that you could name. What am I going to do about blank? Um, is there a word here in Jesus's? Uh, resting of authority. I have not come to do blank, but I have come to do blank. Could there be, could there be good news, something that's not recycled, but truly new in the news? I have come to do blank. To sinners, to people who are come to a point, um, however they arrive, to a place that say, I have need. I'm not well, I'm sick, I'm broken, I'm weak, I cannot. Um, Is there a word here for you? Is there a word here for me? So that's kind of the theme. And all this is in this this quote from Augustine in his Confessions. Really a remarkable little book. If you're starting to think about Lent and you want a book for Lent, I mean, the Confessions of Augustine are great. No exaggeration here. You know, you go into Barnes & Noble as if anybody goes into a bookstore anymore. But if you're browsing on Amazon um, in the Christian living section, this was the first book that went into the Christian living section. I mean, it was really sort of the first almost of its, it may have been, the first of its instance. It was really sort of a new genre. Um, Devotional uh, memoir is what it is. Um, The Confessions of St. Augustine, where he just confesses um, to God uh, in a narratible form. It's like a diary. Um, He's just confessing to God what he already knows about himself, uh, about God, and what he has done. And it's really remarkable. It still stands these 1,700-something years later as something that really punctures us. Um, And he said a word in there, uh, in loving me, you made me lovable. Of course, he's confessing that to God. He's saying, 
how did I get to a place where what I wasn't, I now am? Um, and he goes through all these ways. And he had a hard life. He, and he chose a hard life. Hard in the sense that it was he, he wrote it hard early. I mean, a lot of sexual sins. Uh, I mean, he was, he was a Las Vegas poster boy, you might say. Um, uh, and then the Lord intervened through the prayers of his mother, of all things. Um, There's a word of encouragement for a lot of us. And something happened. And Augustine would later, in trying to make sense of my life, where he goes, what happened? Who was that masked man? Who waylaid me on the way to Damascus? How did I get here? This is not what I had in mind. Uh, And he came out with this really thunderous phrase, in loving me, you made me lovable. He starts to make sense of his life. How did I become this when I was that? And he starts to realize, aha, it was the way you loved me. You loved me when I was all that, and that made me something else. You made me lovable. I wasn't lovable first. I was lovable second. And my unlovability, you punctured me. You came through. You crashed. You invaded. You took what wasn't and spoke into it and in the way that your word does so well you made something that wasn't um, when the earth was formless and void and the Lord spoke and then there was something before there was nothing and then there was something and in loving me when you spoke love to me when you called me forth you made me something that I wasn't So all these themes, Um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. Um, And we call that repentance. This is not then what I'm calling you to do, but what I'm calling forth to see that has been done, that we have been turned. Um, So in some ways I didn't know I was going to do all that. That's just an introduction. stating the overarching theme. Now we'll go back. And like we did last time, I think in some ways, this is why I want to do this short two little series. Uh, narratives. I think narratives describe this the best. I mean, the narrative of Augustine, which I just went through, his, his short bio um, of the poster boy for Las Vegas, but his mom never gave up, kept praying, kept praying, kept praying, and then something happened. Uh, and last time we looked um, a month ago, long time, we looked at a short film. If you weren't here, it's okay. Um, a short film in French, which is really funny because I don't <coughs> speak French. Uh, a short film in French of a man who was about to break up with his wife um, to, uh, to go to his mistress. Uh, and at the arranged spot, just when he was about to tell her that I'm leaving, she gave him the news with, via uh, a doctor's report that she's dying. And everything changed. Everything changed. Then he began to love her, and in loving her, he in fact made her lovable to him, and he himself was changed. And so that was the way we tried to approach it. And then also a short excerpt from John Zoll's little book, Grace and Addiction, just a great, great, great book. Again, a narrative where a new Ford Pinto, that's the funny thing, I think, in it, because um, it's just fun to think of a Ford Pinto that's new, um, played a, a prominent role in, uh, in the turning of an alcoholic where uh, uh, a man 
uh, an alcoholic, one who was broken, who was in need, uh, received love and not judgment, and it changed his life. Just one example, um, and we'll have a couple of more today. That's really what I wanted to do. If there was a, uh, a place in all this, I've been thinking a lot about Thomas Cranmer recently and Ashley Null, who's been here several times, and his, uh, his great aphorism, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Thomas Cramner didn't say that. Ashley Null said that about Thomas Cramner's theology. Thomas Cramner, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, the one who architects Anglicanism as we understand it, as we know it, the prayer book and all that. Um, the way that he would say Cramner got what it means to be a human being. Um, that Cramner got what Augustine was describing in narratival form in his confessions. That in loving me, you made me lovable. That in loving me first, um, that it made me something that I wasn't before. And he realized that the problem is always an issue of the heart. So what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And if it's the old heart, the stony heart, um, as the Bible, especially Ezekiel and, as, and Jeremiah, love to speak in this way, uh, likes to describe it, that the, that the Lord will, will take the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. And thereupon shall he write his name. Um, or is not my word like a hammer, saith the Lord, which breaks the heart, the old stony heart, into pieces and then brings forth what the Lord kills. He then quickens uh, and gives a new heart of flesh. And so what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And when it, so it describes the, uh, the old heart, um, the stony heart of the old Adam, myself in my flesh and in my sin, what that heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And we come out with all these rationalities about how things ought to be and how I've been offended, etc. and so forth. But then, once God has quickened what he has also brought about to its end, um, a new heart with a new set of affections, with a new set of desires and wills is then begun. And so we pray sometimes, Lord, incline our hearts, our new hearts, to keep this law. Let us not see it as condemnation and judgment, but as your glory, um, your work done in your way in our lives. So all that sets up a couple of, um, of great stories. Um, and as I was thinking about this on Friday, I thought of the, uh, the great 1970s theologian Maxine Nightingale. It's supposed to be funny. Um, you know that I, I, I didn't know who that was. I remember the song... Uh, 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 about love. It's always about love. Love is good. Love can be strong. We've got to get back, right back to where we started from. You know that song? She's right. Love is good. Love is strong. We've got to get right back to where we started from. We love because he first loved us. Um, we go back to the place where we started from. We go back where we started. The kinks. All these songs started to come out to me. Uh, where we go back where? To where we were loved. To where we, we, we knew we weren't being criticized, admonished, quote, helped. Um, we were being loved. We were being accepted. We were being received. We were being uh, seen as unlovely and loved anyway. When I threw up in his Ford Pinto and he didn't kick me out, but he said, let me clean that up. We're going to get you some help. It changed everything. 
uh, we're going to get right back to where we started. That's where we go, that first love. And then the 16th century pop star Luther said the same thing. <laughs> to stand still on God's way, sanctification, um, to stand still on God's way means to go back. And to go forward, i.e. progress, means always to begin anew. So how do we start again? Where's progress? In what way can we describe Christian living as moving ahead? We go back where we started from. We go back where we started. We go back to the place where we were first loved by God, accepted while we were yet sinners, while we were the enemies of God, while the nail was in my hand and the hammer was in yours, and we were driving it through the wrists and the feet of our Lord. We go back there when he demonstrated his love for us and he died. We go right back where we started from because to stand still means to go back and to go forward um, means to always begin again. So, uh, well, a quick word and then we'll get to a uh, quick diversion. Then we'll get to a story in one of Brennan Manning's books. Uh, John O'Lineball, credit where credit is due, who's coming to do the men's retreat in about a month. Um, I just think he gets it in a really, really connective way. So I hope the men in the room can join me with him. He, he said it in such a succinct way one time. He said, I think oftentimes we get, and I wrote a blog post on this for the Bible in the Year thing. So if you heard it, that's where you heard it. We get it confluted. Of course, how do we develop? We eat. <laughs> And then we grow. Sometimes when we're old, we eat and we still grow, and that's bad. But our children eat and they grow and they develop and they become older and they become uh, the way we want them to be. And they become independent and they move out and they grow up. And, of course, we then go back and we read that very natural, intuitive, reasonable, understandable process into what we call, quote, Christian living. And it's completely wrong and it hurts us. It's injurious, you might even say. Because to grow up in Christ is to what? It's to grow down. Jesus said, Let them come unto me, for unless you receive the kingdom of God as one of these little children, you cannot be in me. We grow down when we grow up. We go back where we started. Um, love is good. Love is strong. we got to get right back where we started from. We go back and we grow down. It's the anti Progress. We become more and more dependent rather than increasingly independent. To grow up, to be mature in the faith, is not to, uh, to be apart from God, but to be so united with him as the two should almost be indissoluble. And so within that theme, um, Brendan Manning, who died a few years ago, anything to get your hands on, if you just want to sort of cry, <laughs> read Brendan Manning. Um, I mean, he's a, what a, what a complicated story, very Augustine-like. Um, I mean, he was a Jesuit priest, and then he became, I think he had an affair, and he was an alcoholic, and so he got kicked out, and then, and then the Lord met him. And again, in loving him, he made Brendan Manning lovable, and he became just consumed with grace. The Ragamuffin Gospel was a book that I read early in my my, uh, my sort of adult life, um, and it still stands. It's some, probably 30 years old now, 25 years old. If you can get your hands on it, if you've not read it, it's great. It's really, really, really good. And he wrote this one called A Furious Longing for God, uh, The Furious Longing of God. And again, just a narrative, just to describe so we can have um, uh, sort of a, 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 
an actual sort of grounding, a concrete way of hearing uh, the way this works, so it doesn't remain just sort of an abstract idea. And so Brendan Manning writes, um, back in the late 1960s, I was teaching at a university in Ohio, and there was a student on campus who, by society standards, would have been called ugly. He was short, extremely obese, and he had a terrible case of acne, a bad lisp, and his hair was growing like Lancelot's horse in four directions at one time. He wore the uniform of the day, a t-shirt that hadn't been washed since the Spanish-American War, <laughs> jeans with a butterfly on the back, and of course, no shoes. In all my days, I've never met anybody with such low self-esteem. He told me that when he looked in the mirror each morning, he spit at it. Of course, no campus girl would date him. No fraternity wanted him as a pledge. So he walked into my office one day, and he said, his lisp evident, ah, you're the new face on campus. Well, my name is Larry Mullaney, and I'm an agnostic. <laughs> he said, you're what? I said, you're what? He repeated himself, and I said, I'm an agnostic. He said, wow, congratulations. If you ever become an atheist, I'll take you out to dinner, and we'll celebrate your conversion. <laughs> the story I'm about to tell you is what Larry got for Christmas one year. <clears throat> Christmas came along for Larry Mullaney, and he found himself back with his parents, back where we started, back with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. Larry's father was a typical lace curtain Irishman. Now there are lace curtain Irish and there are shanty Irish. A lace curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day in the summer, will not come to the dining room table without wearing a suit, usually a dark pinstripe, starched, I had to make sure what I was wearing, starched in a white shirt and a tie swollen at the top. He will never allow his sideburns to grow to the top of his ears and he always speaks in a low, subdued voice. Well, Larry comes to a dinner table that first night home, smelling like a billy goat. He and his father have the usual number of quarrels and reconciliations, and thus begins a typical vacation in the Mullaney household. Several nights later, Larry tells his father he's got to go back to school the next day. What time, son? Six o'clock. Well, I'll ride the bus with you. The next morning, the father and the son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus, and Larry has to catch a second one to get to the airport. Directly across the street are six men standing under an awning. All the men who work, uh, all all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. They begin making loud and degrading remarks like "Oink oink, look at that fat pig." I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'm so embarrassed. Another said, "I wouldn't if that slob was my kid. He'd be out the door so fast he wouldn't know if he's on foot or on horseback." Hey, pig, give us your best oink. These brutal salvos continued. Larry Mullaney told me that in that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him, kissed him on the lips, and said, Larry, if your mother and I live to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift that he gave us in you. I'm so proud you're my son. It'd be hard to describe in words the transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney, but I'll try. He came back to school and he remained a hippie, but he cleaned up the best he could. Miracle of miracles, Larry began dating a girl. To top it off, he became the president of one of the fraternities. By the way, he was the first student in the history of the university to graduate the 4-2. Larry Mullaney had a brilliant mind. Larry came to my office one day and said, tell me about this man, Jesus. For the first six weeks and half, in the next six weeks and half hour increments, I shared with Larry what the Holy Spirit revealed to me about Jesus. At the end of those six weeks, Larry said, okay. And then on June 14th, 74, 
Larry Mullaney was ordained a priest in the Diocese of Providence, Rhode Island. For the past 20 years, he's been a missionary in South Africa, a man totally sold out to Jesus Christ. Do you know why? It wasn't because of six weeks sitting in Brendan Manning's office when he talked. No, it was because of a day long ago during a Christmas vacation standing at a bus stop when the lace curtain Irish father healed him. Yes, his father healed him. His father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply to his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. So it's a beautiful story. Um, I wouldn't change a word. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story of repentance. A high-quality repentance, we might say. Um, a repentance which Larry Mullaney had no part of in a certain sense. He was turned. He didn't turn. He was turned by the furious love of his father, a lace Irish, a lace curtain Irishman, um, a man reserved. And it changed the course of his life. Now, I love these stories. I love them just like you do. But what's wrong with them? There's a lot um, to say about them. Again, I wouldn't change a word, but here's the problem, I think. Um, there's always these moments of change that are difficult to script because the problem is when I read these, what do I want to do? I want to love that way. But really what I want to do, I want to love that way so the people that I'm loving will do what I want them to do, <laughs> become what I want them to become. I want them to become sort of sold out for Jesus and like, oh, you're right, Father, Prince among men, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And it just doesn't work that way. Oh. And then I realize my own sin in all that where I'm not loving to love them, anybody, to, uh, to repentance, to where there's a place of, uh, of the one who came not to call the sick, not to call the, the righteous or the well, but the sick to repentance, to be turned. This isn't to somebody to wag their finger. Let's unpack that word real fast to make sure we know what repent. It is not you're doing wrong and you need to get it right. You need to repent and believe. Because that's all my action. That is not that is not what the Lord does when He calls one to repentance. Because He is the caller, and the caller goes forth and creates the very thing which is called repentance, a change. And that's the problem. That's my problem, is when I want to control that change. Because um, we can't. Because my words aren't a living word. Um, the Lord's words are the living word. Now, Larry Mullaney's father, I don't know. Maybe he'd never done that before. Maybe he'd done it a thousand times. But Larry Mullaney's ears at that moment were opened. And the scales in that moment fell off of his eyes and he could see it. I don't know. But I know that when I read these, I want to go out and love you so that you can you know, say, oh, Gil Cracky did all these things. Or love my children so they can say, oh, Dad. Or love May May and say, oh, he's so... You know, that's just the sinful underside of all that. So we look at that and we say, well, I can either not do it or I can love anyway and let the Lord sort of bring it out in the way he wants. And I think that's what Larry Mullaney's dad did. He said, I'm just going to love my son. Um, motivations, consequences be damned, literally. Uh, I'm just going to love my son. And then... The love of God, God's love is glorified as we love the unworthy. Me. <laughs> when I love that way, 
well, I don't want to go too far here. Um, now in the ad lib mode, uh, I'll just stop. Um, so um, let's shift. So unconditional love. I never really liked that phrase because that's what we want to sort of put that into a category and say, okay, so we need to love other people unconditionally. It's like, no. Let's, if we create a sheet of paper and say phrases that have lost their meaning or phrases that seem to mean one thing and become another, let's put that on there. We don't love unconditionally. And I think the way that we hear, the way that I hear the story of Larry Mullaney uh, reveals that. Um, unconditional love has no condition placed to it. And I love people like that all the time but with all sorts of conditions. What do I want? I want you to respond to me. I want you to respond to my love. And that is conditioned love. We don't love unconditionally. God does. He's the only one. He loves without anything in return. Um, and so to help contrast that, there's a place right before the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus. Uh, this is a furious love. Um, if I was bold, I would... Um, I would read this. I heard this. In fact, when I was in uh, in England for, a, for for for, a, for for that season where I was in England, and I heard somebody who was, of course, a great baritone Englishman, and you read it in this really dramatic reading, and even put um, a piece from Verdi's Requiem called the Tuba Mirum, which I did in class once, and it was really it gets really, 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 really loud. Some people say it's the uh, the uh, the loudest piece of musical score that was ever composed. And so with all that as the background, if I had the chutzpah, I would do that, but I'm not. Um, because if I was going to make up a religion, if I was going to turn religion into a way that I wanted it to be, this is how I would do it. I mean, you can't impregnate these few verses with, with, with enough drama. And it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning. This is all setting up around Mount Sinai, the, the, the mount where Moses would go up and God would come down and, and, and God would deliver the Ten Commandments. Remember our Bibles up till now. Um, God doesn't come down. Um, and when he does, it's, it's death. It's bad. Um, God came down in the flood and poof, everything was dead. Um, uh, or he you know, destroys the Tower of Babel. Um, God coming down, seeing God face to face. I want to know him. That was a bad idea back then. You, you looked at him and you died. Like, blow up. Um, so on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So imagine fear, terror. If there's a setup, thunder, lightning, the mountain shakes, earthquakes, all the people who uh, who've been making all these idols, you know, boiling their gold rings and making you know little calves and all that sort of stuff, they get drug out. Um, it says Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They knew what that meant. This was not good news. This wasn't like, oh, let's go look at the baby. This is going to be so great. There was none of that. Um, going out to the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke went up from uh, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of a trumpet, grew louder and louder. It's like, where is that trumpet coming from? Um, uh, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. If there was ever a brave step in the history of humanity, it was Moses went up. He went up the mountain in that situation to meet God. Um, this is the way it ought to be, right? I mean, this is, this is religion. This is the furious longing where we know exactly who we're supposed to be, right? Um, well, no, because it doesn't work. It didn't work. Um, I mean, for the moment, we changed our behavior. We, we, we sat up straight and we were sore afraid. <laughs> we, uh, we, we, we sat as the mountain trembled, wrapped in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning. And we were very, very frightening. And we were scared and we, we obeyed. But then Moses went up and he didn't come back for a while. And what did we do? We went away and we took out the rest of our jewelry and we boiled them again and we made more calves so that we could create a God that we could manage, so we could create a God that we could look at, touch, manipulate, control. Ye shall be like gods is sown into us in the very center of our souls. And we went and we played religion. It didn't work. So again, this whole question of, and God did not come to call the, the well, the righteous, but the sinners, the sick to repentance, to call forth not action on their part, but my own action. And so something changes. Something changes in God's work in us. Uh, uh, unconditional love actually becomes incarnated. And it really happened. And the Lord came down. And this time, He came... Uh, not to show us God, not to lead us to God, not to give an example of how to, to worship. He came down to die so that we would then have a new way to love, have a new way to be loved. Um, and so the last piece, uh, a short story by Langston Hughes, which I didn't know about. Um, I bet a lot of y'all did. Um, 1958. <coughs> Uh, yeah, I'll read this quick. Um, again, just a uh, uh, coming alongside of this where someone who, uh, you know that aphorism, love the sinner but hate the sin? Um, as it's been said a lot of times, that's great and all. Uh, it's kind of like teaching a puppy how not to go to the bathroom. Um, I love the puppy, but I don't like it when he pees on the floor, you know, that sort of thing. And so I love him. I love the puppy. I just don't like what he's doing. And that feels right until you turn it around and you're the puppy. <laughs> it doesn't feel so good. Um, you're like, wait a minute. I can't not be what I am. You know, I'm a puppy. I pee. I, I go on the, you know, this is where I go. I, I, you, now you don't love me when you're disciplining me like that. This love the sinner, hate the sin is great until you're the sinner. It doesn't work. Um, I think Langston Hughes, I don't think was any sort of, I think he actually had a lot of issues with the church. I don't know anything about Langston Hughes except that. Uh, he got it here, where it's a short story of a woman and a little boy. The boy tries to rob her, and the woman doesn't take the, what we might call the high road, and love the sinner but hate the sin, give him a strong admonition or something like that. 
but comes in a completely different way. Um, there is no love the sinner, hate the sin here. Uh, so she was a large woman with a large purse and had everything in it but a hammer and nails. And he had a long strap and she carried it slung across her shoulder. It was about 11 o'clock at night and she was walking alone when a boy ran up behind her and tried to snatch her purse. The strap broke with a single tug uh, that the boy gave from it behind, but the boy's weight and the weight of the purse combined to cause to lose, combined to cause him to lose his balance. So, instead of taking off full blast as he had hoped, the boy fell on his back on the sidewalk, and his legs flew up, and the large woman simply turned around and kicked him square in the blue jean sitter. Then she reached down, picked the boy up by his shirt front, and shook him until his teeth rattled. After the woman said, pick up my pocketbook, boy, and give it here. And she still held him, but she bent down enough uh, to permit him to stoop down and pick up her purse. And then she said, now ain't you ashamed of yourself? Firmly gripped by a shirt front, the boy said, yes, am The woman said, what did you want to do that for? The boy said, I named two. She said, you a lie. By that time, two or three people passed, stopped, turned to look, and some stood watching. If I turn you loose, will you run? Asked the woman. Yes, am said the boy. Then I won't turn you loose, said the woman. She did not release him. I'm very sorry, lady. I'm sorry, whispered the boy. Mm-hmm. Your face is dirty. I got a great mind to wash your face for you. Ain't you got nobody at home to wash your face? No, em, said the boy. Then it'll get washed this evening. And the large woman started up the street, dragging the frightened boy behind her. He looked as if he were 14 or 15, frail and willow wild in tennis shoes and blue jeans. And the woman said, I think this is important, you ought to be my son. Well, I would teach you right from wrong. Least I can do now is wash your face. Are you hungry? No, him said the, uh, and no, him said the being dragged boy. I just want me, I just want you to turn me loose. Is I bothering you when I turn that corner? No, him. But you put yourself in contact with me, said the woman. If you think that that contact is not going to last a while, you got another thing coming. When I get through with you, sir, you are going to remember Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones. Sweat popped out on the boy's face and he began to struggle. Miss Jones stopped, jerked him around in front of her, put a half Nelson around his neck and continued to drag him up the street. <coughs> when she got to her door, she dragged the boy inside down a hall into a large kitchenette furnished room near the rear of the house. She switched on the light and left the door open. The boy could hear other rumors laughing and talking in the large house. Some of the doors were open too, so he knew that the woman, he and the woman, were not alone. The woman had still had him by the neck in the middle of her room. She said, what is your name? Roger, said the boy. Then Roger, you go to that sink and wash your face, said the woman. Whereupon she turned and loose. Whereupon she turned him loose at last. Roger looked at the door, looked at the woman, looked at the door, and went to the sink. Let the water run until it gets warm, she said. Here's a clean towel. You going to take me to jail? Asked the boy, bending over the sink. Not with that face. I wouldn't take you nowhere, said the woman. Here I am trying to get home to cook me a bite to eat, and you snatch my pocketbook. Maybe you ain't been to supper either, late as it be, have you? There's nobody home at my house, said the boy. Then we'll eat, said the woman. I believe you're hungry or been hungry. You try to snatch my pocketbook. I wanted a pair of blue suede shoes, said the boy. Well, you didn't have to snatch my pocketbook to get some suede shoes, said Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones. You could have asked me. Ma'am? The water dripping from his face, the boy looked at her. There was a long pause, a very long pause. After he had dried his face and not knowing what to do, 
He dried it again. The boy turned around, wondering what next. The door was open. He could make a dash for it down the hall. He could run, 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 run. The woman was sitting on the daybed. After a while, she said, I were young once, and I wanted things I could not get. There was another long pause. The boy's mouth opened. Then he frowned, but not knowing that he frowned. The woman said, "Mm mm-hmm. You thought I was going to say, but, didn't you? You thought I was going to say, but I didn't go around stealing people's pocketbooks. Well, I wasn't going to say that. Pause. I have done things, too, which I should not tell you, son, neither to God, but if if he didn't already know. So you sit down a while while I fix us something to eat. You might run that comb through your hair so you will look presentable. In another corner of the room behind a screen was a gas plate and an icebox. Miss Jones got up and went behind the screen. The woman did not watch the boy to see if he was going to run now, nor did she watch her purse, which she had left behind on the daybed. But the boy took care to sit on the far side of the room, where he thought she could easily see him out of the corner of her eye, if she wanted to. He did not trust the woman not to trust him, and he did not want to be mistrusted now. Do you see somebody go to that store? asked the boy. Do you need somebody to go to the store? asked the boy. Maybe get some milk or something? I don't believe I do, said the woman, unless you want sweet milk yourself. I was going to make cocoa out of this canned milk I got here. That'll be fine, said the boy. She heated some lima beans and ham, made the cocoa, and set the table. The woman didn't ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, they ate. And she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late, what her work was like, and all kinds of women that came in and out, blondes, redheads, and Spanish. Then she cut half of her ten-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. And they were finished eating. She got up and said, Now here, take this ten dollars and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. And next time, do not make the mistake of latching on to my pocketbook nor nobody else's, lest shoes come by devilish, uh, because shoes that come by devilish like that will burn your feet. i got to get my rest now. But I wish you would behave yourself, son, from here on in. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night and behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the street. The boy wanted to say something else other than thank you, ma'am, to Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones, but he couldn't do so as he turned but he couldn't but he couldn't do so as he turned to that barren stoop and looked back at the large woman in the door. He barely managed to say thank you before she shut the door. And he never saw her again. Kinda ends off tonic. That's just on the internet, public domain. Thank you, ma'am, by Langston Hughes. So, the furious love of God, um, which calls the righteous, not, doesn't call the righteous, but sinners, to turn to him. Lord, come, take these words, humbly offer to make them yours. Uh, correct me where I was wrong. Strengthen your word. Uh, it would be right by your grace, Lord. I pray that you would unstop our ears and remove the scales from our eyes so we would see you and hear you and be changed thereby. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.